1950s, um, shortly after World War II, an economist named Victor Labau said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and the use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever accelerating rate. Since then, you know that you and I are exposed to 3,000 ads per day. This means that you and I will see more ads in one year than someone would have seen in a lifetime in 1950. Here's some collective stats since the 50s that I found interesting. We as a nation, so the United States, are 5% of the world's population, but we actually use 30% of the world's resources and we produce 30% of the world's waste. The average home size since the 1950s has grown from 1,100 square feet to 20, over 2,800 square feet. 99% of our goods produced are trashed within six months. If everyone on the planet consumed as we did in the US, we would need 3.9 Earths to sustain our consumption. Now, though important, I'll stop there because uh, if not, we'll move fully into a creation care sermon. But I, I bring this up because sociologists are actually saying that our identity as consumers is ultimately alienating us as people. Culturally in the 50s, we actually peaked in, in regard to our happiness as a people. And we've been on a steady decline ever since. The shift to attaching our identities to our consumption leaves us competing with each other for status, for prestige, and it all comes by means of further accumulation. As I look to find fulfillment, to get my acclaim, to grasp at worldly exaltation. You see, in the consumer narrative, I am placed in the center of the story. It is a me over a we world that we live in right now. The great author C.S. Lewis said that pride is the great sin. See, in this incredibly divided world, with all our political and social and racial divisions, today we wrap up our series that we may be one. Inspired by John 17, this was Jesus' great prayer on the night that he was betrayed, that his followers would be marked by unity, that they would be one, that they would be a we over a me culture. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Philippians 2. It's found in the second half of your Bible, the New Testament. It's right between Ephesians and Colossians. Though a shorter letter, which Paul, our early church planner, wrote, it's central to who Jesus is in relation to God and our call to live as followers of Jesus. And central to this call is humility. Not too popular in our culture of consumption, of competition, of pride. But if you hear anything today, I want you to hear that a life of humility gives us the ability to seek relational unity. 
A life of humility gives us the ability to seek relational unity. So let's go to Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read in its entirety, and then we will break some things down and even check out a cool little video. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, I want to pause there. As Paul writes back to this church, this group of people in Philippi, he's talking about relationships here. He's writing them to them as a group of people who are supposed to or trying to pursue unity, but just have massive amounts of differences. But I want you to hear this. As, as he writes back, I think he actually addresses this, 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 this unity that we experience, this thing that can ex- just destroy a church, the one thing that can destroy a marriage, the one thing that will destroy your relationships in the office or in family. And it's pride. And I think he gives a great definition here when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You see, selfish ambition in the original Greek meant that it was a greedy attempt to gain the upper hand. In other words, trying in every situation to end up on top, to win in every relationship. So I was growing up, my mom would oftentimes uh, just say, hey, you're going to make a great lawyer one day. And in that, what she was actually saying is that, hey, you're able that no matter what the circumstances, you find a way to come out on top. I mean, I could be 100% dead wrong in something, but I could find a way to twist the words in my favor. I could find a way to make someone else uh, feel bad about what they did against me and that's how I happened and now it's their fault. I could twist any matter so that I would still find favor, that I would come out on top, that I would gain the upper hand and it was completely through the lens of pride. It was greedy attempt that I was pursuing. And I would just hope that I'm a worse off lawyer today than I was 10, 15, 20 years ago. But let's keep reading. And doesn't this leave us hanging here in this definition of pride? He goes on to say, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but, but in this world of consumption, this thing of pride, this, this, this thing about gaining for self, defending myself, protecting myself, 
when we look at this lens of consumerism, what ends up happening, this idea that we're competing with one another, that we're using one another, it starts to infiltrate everything that we do in our identity. So let's just take purchases, for example. Maybe it's not enough just to own a car, but my car needs to be better than yours. It's not enough to be smart. I need to be smarter than you. It's not enough for my kids to be well. They need to be better than yours. My office has to be bigger than yours. My grades have to be higher than yours. Or how about this one? It's not just enough for me to have my own opinion or what I would consider the right way or my truth. I need to get you to agree with me. Do you see how pride and this idea of consumption, consumerism, being wrapped into identity starts to divide us relationally. See, it puts me at the center of the story. So I just ask, we're going to watch a video here in a second. But right now in your life, what relationships are you trying to gain the upper hand? What relationships are you doing whatever you need to do so that you can be on top, so that others conform to your way, so that you can continue to consume a relationship or a context or a situation with others that will benefit you, that keeps you at the center of the story? Now, we're going to lean on the the Bible project here for a second, and we're just going to capture just this, this moment of what I just read, and then we're going to pull out a couple things relevant to us today. Paul then turns to the Philippians and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up the same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism. But their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution. But they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1 through 3, and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the king of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is, and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. So how about that? How countercultural this life that Jesus invites us to really is. I mean, in our culture today, this actually just seems naive. I mean, you've seen our presidential debates recently. 
If not, I'm sure you've participated in or seen dialogue between people that are just overwhelmed with pride. First comes my needs, my opinion, my desires, what you think of me. What about my position, my promotion? What about my title? What, how, how, what about how I'm treated in this case? You see, pride says life is all about me. Humility says I will let go of my claim to be God. Now, there is this moment in that scripture. I want to highlight one thing. But if we, if we look at just the chunk of verses 5 to 8, right in the middle, we see in verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. See, this is a, a beautiful word. This made himself nothing is this idea of kenosis. The definition here is to actually empty, to empty oneself. The complete opposite of consuming. The complete opposite of attaching ourselves to gaining, to striving for, to always having control, to putting me at the center of the story. You see, Paul uses this as the central theme, but even and then moves into obedience. But he says, Jesus actually empties himself by taking on the nature of a servant. And Paul's saying that in relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. That if we want to see our relationships go well, if we want to see wholeness, if we want to see unity, the call is not to get people to move to our side of things. The call is not to continue progressing societally through consuming and buying and purchasing. The call is to empty myself, to give myself away in spite of the consequences as we see Jesus go as far as death on a cross. But the challenge is that we love to be exalted. We want to be exalted. We want to protect our well-being. We want to move up in our socioeconomic status. Consumerism puts us at the center of the story, and it's a story of pride. A life of humility gives us the ability to seek unity. So right now, I think the question we get confronted with is how are you emptying yourself? How are you actually combating this idea in this, Ameri- this, experience, this experiment called America that our identity moved from citizen to consumer? How are you combating the 3,000 ads a day that you are not enough, that you need to purchase more, that you need the latest and greatest? How are you moving away from this as it's infiltrating the way we interact with one another, how we use each other, how we use our relationships for pride, for a selfish gain, a greedy, just a pursuit to have the upper hand in our relationships. See, we've been talking a lot about this idea of becoming one, and we've talked about compassion and forgiveness and saying I'm sorry and pursuing curiosity. The thing is, is that none of that happens without humility. None of that happens without saying that I do not need to play God in my own life. I do not need to play God in the life of others. So again, how are you emptying yourself? How are you moving into generosity to actually move away from this cultural stream of consumerism. Because it's harder and harder 
to see the difference between the people of God and the people of this world. A few practical things. Go through your house, get rid of some stuff that you don't need. If you want, you can squeeze it and ask if it brings you joy before doing so. Give financially. See, giving is not for God. He does not need our money. Giving is for us. If you're not giving to Midtown yet, you can give to Midtown. If you want a place to start, go ahead. If you want to give more, give more. Set some resources aside to share with your neighbors. Do other things that actually, in generosity, it pushes you into engaging with others. It doesn't have to be monetary. Call someone this week. Text someone this week. Ask how you can serve them. Ask about their life and just listen. Really what you're looking to do is put yourself in situations that feel unnatural and they feel like they're not about you. It actually feels like you're giving up something. As long as it's benefiting other people, that is ultimately what we're doing here. So this is what I want to wrap up with. Is that if we look at scripture, if we look at the characters of the Bible, there were two people that were called humble, Moses and Jesus. And what that tells me is that we are all in a progression of humility. If humility is a central theme as the people of God, we don't just arrive and all of a sudden we're humble. But we can be transformed by the spirit of God by intentionally choosing to become and practice humility. So let's start here. How often do we stand in front of the mirror and pray for humility? God, humble me, reveal my pride, show me where I'm not trusting you, where I'm operating in my own power, my own ability, how I'm using others in my relationships. And I think Paul, the writer of this letter, took this pretty seriously. See, before Paul, he was named Saul, and he was a Pharisee above all Pharisees. He actually hated and killed Christians. And then he encountered Jesus and his message of grace. So if we look in kind of the sequence of all the letters he wrote, which he wrote, he wrote about half of the New Testament that we read today. Starts off in his first letter he wrote to the church in Galatia. That he was given a gospel to, to, of grace to preach a message. And he didn't need the apostles, those who were with Jesus. For they added nothing to his message. He said, I went to... To, to visit them, but I didn't need them for I was called by God. Interesting, interesting way to start ministry by saying everyone on your team, yeah, I don't, I don't need them. He is called and he acts like he doesn't need anyone else. You ever been there before? I know I have. Now you read a bit further into a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth and he changes a little bit. He says, I realize that I am the least of the apostles for I was abnormally born. In other words, he wasn't around Jesus and the apostles actually were. And he starts to notice that they probably got something that he didn't. And then he goes on to say, I'm the least of the apostles. I am here to serve them. Start to see the shift. Then continuing, we read in Ephesians as he writes to the church in Ephesus, chapter three, verse eight says, for I'm the least of God's people. I'm a servant of God's people. The only reason I exist is so God's people become who they are supposed to. Do you see another step in humility here? Now, toward the end of his life, 
he writes a series of letters to a young disciple named Timothy. And he writes, I realize now that I am the chief of all sinners. God has displayed his unmerited favor through me. You see how just through his life, he continues to humble himself. Though he's probably gaining in knowledge and experience and, and all these other things, but rather than growing in pride, he's actually growing in humility. Could this be true of us? You see, we still have a center. We still have convictions and we, we hold to them. But in those, we're willing to admit that, that we are not yet all we hope that we will be. And isn't this how we demonstrate love to others? An understanding of ourselves and a, a grace for others that enables us to engage them, no matter our differences. What if that's how God's people were known in the world? That if you bumped into someone and they were compassionate, even with those they disagree with, that they're quick to forgive, they're quick to apologize. They lead with curiosity about other people's lives. They actually see others better than themselves. You would kind of just go, they must know Jesus. See, you don't need to defend or protect yourself. The call to the being a, pe a person of God, to following Jesus, is that you seek to bless, that we seek to get low. Can we trust that God will do the exalting in that just as he did with Jesus? That he will take care of the relational unity when we empty ourselves for the sake of others. What if that's what it means to follow Jesus? I think people like that might just change the world. But if we commit ourselves to that, I think that our city will actually be transformed.